We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I say that in air quotes because this episode was not streamed on YouTube. We kind of ran out of time, and as far as logistics... Uh, Jim Margulis will be visiting First Horizon Park in Nashville, Tennessee, as he's covering the Charlotte Knights game as they face the Nashville Sounds. And uh, Jim, how's First Horizon Park? It's nice. You know, it's the modern downtown ballpark with a nice skyline view. And, uh, you know, it's right across the street from a sausage house slash beer hall. So that's nice. A Brooklyn Bowl is right around the corner. Uh, basically, if I were... 10 years ago and, and maybe single and, uh, and didn't have to worry about a dog or anything like that. I would consider moving to the neighborhood, but <laughs> I need a yard. Uh, yeah, I had to be 10 minutes drive away, but yeah, it's, it's nice. And, uh, the people there are friendly and accommodating, uh, as much as they can be with COVID restrictions still in place, but able to kind of go around the park, go where I need to go, take photos and such. So, uh, yeah, it's been fun. We'll talk more about the Charlotte Knights, especially Jake Berger, because White Sox fans have a lot of questions about Jake Berger later in this episode. Uh, but we're going to recap the White Sox visit to Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about trade possibilities for the White Sox as we are five weeks away from, from the trade deadline and preview this weekend's series against the Seattle Mariners. So let's start off with the White Sox visiting Pittsburgh, Jim, and the White Sox on the season. They're 44-30. and 30. And that's after they split the series in Pittsburgh. We talked about this on Monday's podcast. The expectation was that the White Sox should be sweeping the lowly Pirates. Even though they did salvage one win, I still think that this was a bad series for the White Sox. What are your general thoughts about how the White Sox played in Pittsburgh? I think that's fair. Um, Yeah. I think it's disappointing just based on the way their lineup operated against uh, Chase DeYoung and, and Trevor Williams beforehand. It, it's, you know, you keep hoping or waiting for that one game that just kind of sets things right. Jose Abreu getting back on track, Yohan Makata getting back on track, but instead it's just hard lineup isn't there. Yasmani Grandal has been pretty good as of late and come up with some big hits and Larry Garcia showing signs of life and occasionally Jake Lamb does something, but all these contributions feel like they're kind of scattered across the lineup and not necessarily uh, how the lineup is set up to capitalize on. You know, really the lineup goes through Tim Anderson and then whoever's betting second, then Yohan Makata, and then Jose Abreu after him. And when they're not really functioning as they should, especially Abreu and Mankata, uh, it, it just makes the runs a lot harder to come by, a lot harder to kind of sequence in advance. So I think that's really what's disappointing so far. The pitching still kind of a mess, or at least when it comes to the bullpen. Giolito was fine. Cease was fine, especially with the first week of the crackdown. So uh, I think they more or less met expectations. The bullpen, though, you know, just still a little bit troublesome. But the offense, I think, has to come through at some point to make uh, an occasional bullpen stumble or an off-start forgivable. Yeah, the offense is not providing the bullpen any cushion or any margin of error 
at all. Uh, I want to talk about the good out of this series first, trying to be more positive. Uh, <laughs> Yasmani Grandal, you mentioned him. He was the hero for the White Sox this series. In game one, he had the pinch hit, three-run homer in the seventh inning to give the White Sox the lead. Cap tip to Tony La Russa. That was a good call before even the results. Uh, I like the idea of Grandal being the right-hander facing the left-handed pitcher on the mound, uh, replacing Collins, and I'm glad that he went there, and uh, he got a terrific result out of that. So good call. Game two, the two-run double in the fifth inning to give the White Sox the lead, and that ended up being the game-winning hit as they won 4-3. to three. In the month of June, Yasmani Grandal, so much has been made about his batting average. He's hitting 241 in June with a 380 on base percentage, and he's slugging 517. He's got five home runs this month with 11 RBIs. He leads the team in both of those categories. Grandal's getting hot, Jim. Mm-hmm. Is it enough for Grandal to get him on the All-Star team? It's possible. Uh, I, I think there's maybe a little bit of a bias against somebody like him just because uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when Felix Hernandez, I think it was Felix Hernandez, won the... Uh, Cy Young with like a pitiful win total <laughs> and it wasn't the idea of what a Cy Young winner should have been and I think there's probably the same thing to a certain degree among all-stars even though catcher has a lower standard for offense than other positions just a matter of uh, when a guy is hitting you know perhaps like if you're qualifying for the batting average hitting a record low like lower than Rob Deere low for a batting average that still doesn't set right with some people but when you look at the field you look at his power contributions, his walk contributions. Uh, the rest of the numbers are there. Yeah, if you look at weighted runs created plus, he's right there with Salvador Perez. And they just do it in different manner, right? Salvador Perez, he's always been one of the league leaders as far as catchers in power and in batting average. But the dude doesn't walk, whereas Yasmani Grandal is not making a ton of contact. We know that he is the walk god. Uh, but now he's flexing some power, and he's right there when you're looking at weighted runs, create a plus with Salvador Perez. The vote total, it's going to be Perez. Perez is going to start the All-Star game for the American League at catcher because he's just got a significant lead on the votes. But I have a feeling Grandal's going to finish runner-up in the vote total, Jim, and he's going to be on this American League All-Star roster as the backup catcher to Perez, and we'll see a few innings out of Grandal in the game, he might be the only position player the White Sox have on the All-Star team. We'll, we'll get into Jose Abreu in a moment, but you know Abreu's got such a huge deficit to Vlad Guerrero Jr. in the All-Star voting total. It's like 1.4 million vote difference. It's ridiculous. Uh, Tim mm-hmm. Anderson's fading in the shortstop race, and Yohan Makata's also fading in the third base race, but that was always going to be a tough race. For Yohan Makata is Rafael Devers and Jose Ramirez. Those guys are really performing well. One player on the good side that I want to talk about is not on the White Sox. He's on the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that is Adam Frazier. Rick Hahn was in attendance for these two games, and he got a firsthand look at Frazier going three for eight with a home run, a double, two RBIs, and he also scored twice in the series, in the two-game series. Frazier looked good, Jim. And I think he would be a worthwhile addition. You wrote about this on SoxMachine.com. There's a lot as far as what the White Sox are needing for an offensive addition that Frazier checks as far as the box is off. Is Frazier the best the White Sox could possibly add before the trade deadline on July 31st? Possibly. Uh I think when it comes to second base, like if they wanted to address second base primarily, they didn't want to roll with Danny Mendick and Larry Garcia there, then yes, I think he's the best they can do. Just he fills in what Nick Madrigal offered uh, with the high contact, high batting average, uh, but more power. So you have to like what that looks like, especially with his left-hand swing. Like I, I liked how quick it was, how he could lift the ball to the pole field and you know, as we know, watching the White Sox the first couple months with guaranteed right field, like you get the ball in the air to right field, good things can happen. Just the way the jet stream mm-hmm. goes. I could see him benefiting from a few cheap homers. His career high in homers is 10. I guess that's the one thing where if he were the main addition, you might feel like, uh, as you mentioned uh, last time we talked, the home run deficit, he doesn't really help there. But when it comes to all the other shortcomings of the offense, the uh, ability to basically fill the top half of the lineup against right-handed pitching. He helps out a lot. So I think that's really what his 
best selling point would be. Now, I think, you know, if they wanted to try to fill out the outfield and, and kind of leave second base to Mendick and Garcia and not worry about that, then maybe, you know, like somebody like Brian Reynolds, who is also in the series, could also fit well um, with, with what they're trying to do, both handedness-wise and playing across the outfield, whereas Frazier is more of a left fielder who can probably play right. He just hasn't had to, but probably could based on who else the White Sox have trotted out there. But uh, he's up there when it comes to just handedness, position, coverage, and really just, you know, I, I think when I look at the offense, ideally like homers, but I, I think the way I'm framing it in my head is who can bet basically one through fifth? Um, who, who can fill the top half of the order, whether it's in front of Moncada and Abreu or maybe replacing Moncada and Abreu if both have to miss time or just, you know, basically filling out the heart of the order the way your mean Mercedes did in April. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Like Eduardo Escobar, he helps in the power department, helps defensively, but he's not somebody you really want batting one through five. He's more of like a, uh, I would say seventh and below just because his on-base percentage is below 300. So if you're looking for an addition that adds to the lineup, you know, um, lengthens it rather than just kind of rounds it out at the bottom, I think Frazier is one of those guys. Yeah, because you go Tim Anderson lead off, Frazier batting second, Mikata third, Abreu fourth, Grandal five, and if Mikata and Abreu get back to normal, as far as when I when we speak of normal, what they typically hit for a month rather than what we're seeing in the month of June, then yeah, that's that's a lineup that can overcome as far as putting runs on the scoreboard. Uh, the Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Nick Magical injuries until they get some of those players back. Obviously, they're not getting Magical back. And you take whatever you can get from six through nine in the White Sox lineup, where today it's like, well, let's go six through nine in the lineup because three and four aren't doing anything. And you guys got to get on base for Tim Anderson to come up with a big hit. That's just what it feels like right now mm-hmm. watching the, the White Sox offense the last couple of weeks. Uh, As I mentioned in the intro, we are five weeks away from the trade deadline. So while we can say there's still time, time is ticking away. And Major League Baseball teams also have to prepare for a draft. That's in two weeks. So some front offices are going to have to multitask right now, preparing for the draft and also scouting the majors for reinforcements or fielding phone calls right now uh, for teams knocking on the door asking about players. It's got to be a busy time right now for front offices across major league baseball there may not be a lot of end result activity but there's got to be a lot of preparation right now across multiple facets in front offices we talked about the timing of a trade a couple weeks ago when the white Sox could possibly make a move and maybe they could wait into the month of july do you sense a deal coming in the next two weeks for the chicago white Sox, whether it's to improve the lineup or maybe even approving the bullpen. Seems like two weeks, so basically that's through, I'm just looking at the calendar here, uh, to get it, uh, to the 8th. That puts you in so, the Baltimore series. July 8th. I could see a minor move being made. I think Frazier has enough appeal, a guy like him has enough appeal to many teams based on his ability to cover multiple positions, that it would seem like it's in Pittsburgh's interest to not settle right away. Like, I think Escobar, at the time, he was floated by Bob Nightingale as the White Sox being interested. I think that's the kind of player that makes sense for the White Sox to get just because a team like the Diamondbacks is going nowhere. Escobar has limited appeal. He helps the White Sox out right now and might help them later, but uh, he doesn't, you know, Escobar doesn't get in the way of the White Sox improving further. It's a, he's kind of the guy who uh, yeah, is getting paid enough, I think $7.5 million, to where the Diamondbacks would be happy to get out from under what he costs. <laughs> yeah, and I think that might be enough incentive for the White Sox just to send a guy over and get a deal done. So that's the kind of deal I think that could happen within like a couple weeks. But I think when it comes to a Frazier type, it strikes me as like the White Sox are in a comfortable enough position where it's kind of a two-team race in the Central and the and Cleveland has like plenty of issues themselves especially in their rotation so I don't think they feel like the division is on the verge of slipping away so I can see them being patient and I can see teams with uh you know valuable assets also being patient so I could think I I think this could drag out a while and I wouldn't necessarily hit the panic button if the White Sox you know I guess draw nearer to Cleveland um but 
that's my read on it right now. I think, you know, based on the way teams operate, and I think every team likes to think that their front offices are ninjas <laughs> and news breaks when it breaks. But really, like when I think for every team, when, you know, they're always talking and when a deal gets done, they just they do it. I don't think they dangle it too much. I think the dangling is more posturing and reporters liking having something to say uh, more than anything. So Mm -hmm. that's why I think it's, I'm inclined to think it's going to take longer than two weeks to get somebody meaningful. I think for second base, they could wait all the way to the end of the trade deadline. I think the bullpen, they this bullpen needs help. I mean, at this point, I don't know if the white Sox could really trust Cody Hoyer or Matt Foster. Ryan Burr has been pitching really well for the White Sox. That's great. Um, but if if Rick Hahn can find someone that can give Tony La Russa a little bit more confidence in the sixth and seventh innings uh, out of the bullpen to help with the bridge, because uh, Garrett Crochet, his velocity is dropping, and it hasn't been two good outings in Houston and in Pittsburgh that if they sent down, let's say, Cody Hoyer and Matt Foster, the heroes of the 2020 bullpen, uh, which unfortunately they're just not pitching well at the moment, they called up Jace Fry, and they made a trade for a reliever, like let's say of the Joaquin Soria-type quality, so not a closer, but someone that could help throw an inning in the sixth or seventh inning, and let's call medium leverage situations. That's, I think, the first move I could foresee the White Sox making, and I would make that within the next two weeks so then you can pay more attention to how you can outbid other teams for these types of bats. Because I agree with you, Jim, from the teams that are going to be trading away, guys, I could see the, I could see the ones that have the bats sitting on them the longest right up into the very end of the deadline to make sure that they're getting the best possible trade. On the flip side, even the starting pitching front, because it is a desert right now for teams trying to add starting pitchers, so bless up that Carlos Rodon and Dylan Caesar having great seasons for the White Sox. I imagine the Texas Rangers are going to wait into the final minute to trade Kyle Gibson uh, to another team. That's just how I feel right now about the trade deadline, but we're seeing Seattle and Tampa make a move. We've seen Tampa make very small moves in the last few weeks, and I just feel like for Rick Hahn, I, I would pull the trigger and try to add a reliever in these next two weeks. Not a closer type, just someone that could help out with the medium leverage. But I think we're going to have to wait a month or so for another bat to be added to the lineup. And, you know, fingers crossed the White Sox offense approves during that time. Yeah, I think the one guy who might come up from Charlotte if they needed a different look in the bullpen and, and didn't want to shop elsewhere is Nick Turley. He's having a nice season in AAA. They've liked him before. They've uh, claimed him or they've invited him as a non-roster invitee uh, a few years ago. Then they brought him back on a waiver claim briefly on the 40-man roster this year, then bumped off during the spring. Um, they, they've liked him enough to kind of bring him back and around a couple times, and he's having a nice year in Charlotte, uh, probably having the best year of anybody in the Charlotte bullpen in terms of both like run prevention and walks. Uh, you know, I should say walk-to-strikeout ratio. So I, I think you know they might look to him first. They would just need to add two roster spots just because Fry is going to need a roster spot when he comes back coming off the 60-day uh, IL, and then Turley is not on the 40-man. So I think that's the one issue with – um, you know, adding bullpen help in bulk is they would just need to maybe make a hard decision here or there. Well, listening to your White Sox wake up call earlier this week, I'm not confident or think it's even worthwhile to keep Ronaldo Lopez around if he's not approving. Yeah. I mean, him, Blake Rutherford is not really showing a whole lot. They have some guys they can uh, cut here and there. Um, but the, it would just, you know, I, I think Lopez would be. No, they could probably outright him at this point. Like, I don't think they would really worry about losing him, and he might be able to hang around on the roster regardless. So he might be the best guy to try. Whereas a Rutherford, you know, might have a little bit of appeal, somebody trying to roster him. But that just, it'd be one of those two guys, you know, maybe they could shuffle a bullpen guy. Yeah, there, there's always, like, extra pitchers who can go. But for, yeah, I, I guess, you know, Lopez is pretty much on the cusp, I think, of losing his position just in the White Sox franchise as a whole. Which, if you told me that in 2018, I would have been shocked. I would have been shocked, but it hasn't been going well for Lopez. I think the one thing that keeps me from being surprised is just the the lack of a breaking ball, like the lack of a trustworthy secondary pitch, and just having to rely on, you know, being able to reach 98. 
Um, you know, not having that either really good slider or changeup or a pitch he can go to when his fastball's not working. I think that was always the limiting factor for me. And they kept making it about focus and mentality and mechanics. And like, maybe I thought the mechanical thing that Ethan and Katz, you know, the shorter arm swing, I thought maybe that would be one way to get a better breaking ball out of it. They were focusing more on his curveball and his slider, but it's just never, never materialized. And so he's basically, you know, he's got a nine one seven ERA in Charlotte right now. So uh, even though Charlotte's a tough place to pitch when you have like Mike Wright lapping him. Uh, and then you have, you know, Jimmy Lambert improving Jonathan Stever also, you know, being uneven, but at least better. Just it's, it's hard to know where he fits. I wanted to talk about Jose Abreu, but I think I'm going to save this for a column as it's looking like it's going to be final that this is going to be the worst June of his career. And mm-hmm. it's surprising because he had the best May of his career, just a month ago, uh, and he turns around as the worst June of his career. Maybe I'll do a column about uh, Jose Abreu by the month because this dude is like Zeus coming down from the Greek heavens. Uh, and he's just a baseball guy that's sh- like just launching lightning bolts at pitchers when August and September comes around. It's just crazy on how good Jose Abreu has been in his career uh, in the month of August and in September uh, until he got hurt uh, a couple years ago that he missed significant time in the month of September. Uh, but yeah, Jose Abreu in the month of June, hitting 179, a 220 on base percentage, slugging 282. He has just one home run. He's got a 39 weighted runs created plus. And... I sigh because it's just so heartbreaking because White Sox really could use 2020 American League MVP Jose Abreu. And the way that the 2021 season is going for Abreu, April, not that great. He had 213, 296, 394. That's not Jose Abreu type numbers in the first month of the season. May, he was awesome. He had the best May of his career. And like I just mentioned, he's following that up with the worst June of his career. So we talked about lineups before, about mm-hmm. the possibility of adding adding Adam Frazier. Let me know if this is a dumb idea, but I feel like the White Sox should be swapping Grandal and Abreu in the lineup. But I would like Makata to bat second. So I guess you're really not moving Abreu, but I'd rather have a lineup for the White Sox that feature Tim Anderson, Yoan Makata, Yasmani Grandal, and Jose Abreu right now. Because if there are opportunities where the bottom of the lineup is getting on base, I want Grandal at the plate more often than Abreu at this moment, just based on how each hitter has been performing the last month. I will say it's not a dumb idea, but that's also partial because I don't really care about individual lineups all that much. So as long as you have, you know, I think those four batting in the top four or five, I'm more or less okay with it, depending on, you know, what handedness concerns there are elsewhere, or handedness potential benefits. If you have Andrew Vaughn against the lefty, or if you have, um, you know, Jake Lamb against a sinker balling righty, like I think that, you know, that's a case where you can bump them up. Uh, higher in the order and you don't feel bad about it but when it comes to the thought process I don't mind that and you know I I think Abreu being such a fixture sometimes is its own burden like I was I was listening to Frank Thomas and yeah that's sometimes dangerous like I I like Frank when he's in the analyst chair like you feel like you're watching a game on the couch with him Mm -hmm. and he's just uh you're kind of just you're reclining he's got like a a bowl of popcorn resting on his stomach and he's just kind of just saying what comes to mind or saying what he's thinking. That's fine. But when it comes to like just the amount of times he could defeat his own thought, like within 10 seconds, you know, like on the pitching side, he was saying like, he's just got to take a strike zone. And then like Cody Hoyer would give up like a ring double and a sinker in the zone. Like, well, don't do that. Like, okay, great. You just told him to throw strikes. And <laughs> then well, with Jose Abreu kept saying like, he's a run producer and he needs, Tim Anderson to steal because, you know, he, um, right now he's pressing too much on getting Anderson home all the way from first. But then, you know, we've seen him when there's a runner in scoring position, he presses because he needs to get the run home from second. Like, I wonder, you know, how much of that is true? Like how much of Abreu is pressing and how much of is him just kind of living on the edge of being a very aggressive hitter who's oftentimes too aggressive and, yeah, you can easily reverse engineer it or write a narrative that says like, oh, he presses when there's a run scoring opportunity. But I think just sometimes he just gets out of whack. Like, I know there's a velocity concern you've mentioned with him hitting fastballs, but 
you know, this time around against Pittsburgh and I think Astros too, they're throwing them a lot of sliders and he's also mm-hmm. swinging at those. Like, I think it's not so much necessarily catching the velocity as it is like, I'm not sure if it's getting caught in between or not knowing what the sequence is or looking at one zone too much and chasing. And that's why he chases fastballs like five inches off the plate or sliders that end up curling like a foot out of the box. Like I think sometimes he just gets too much in his own head in terms of what he needs to do and how they're going to attack him. And then just all it takes is like uh, basically rearranging the pages of the scouting report and he's thrown off for weeks. Like that just, it seems like once a year at least, and now this is twice a year, unless you count like cold weather in April being the determining factor of that month. But always seems like once a year where he has this like existential crisis of how pitchers are attacking him and him not being able to quickly adjust to it, then he's fine. So this is definitely the longest and like the worst time of it being that June is usually when he starts getting going. And uh, it's, yeah, there's always a threat that he could just look mid thirties in a hurry and, you know, the White Sox have to deal with that. But having seen him struggle against sliders and being caught in between, uh, that makes me think like, at least maybe it's not just a physical issue as much as it is just a um, scouting issue, approach issue. I agree with you on that because he's fixed the four seam issue, Jim, that I had concerns about at the beginning of the year. He was hitting the slider though in April and May. He is completely lost right now against sliders. He has just one hit against sliders in the month of June. That slider batting average is cratered in June. And I don't know what it is, but Jose Breu has not hit at all this season against a sinker curveball combo. So if there's a righty on the mound and they throw a two seamer curveball instead of four seam slider, Jose Breu is getting eaten alive right now. With that combo. And I'm not sure why, because it's never been the case. So I'm with you, Jim. I think it's an approach that's uh, that's bugging Jose Breu. And you wrote about it during the Adam Frazier piece on Sox Machine that Abreu's in between swings right now. And that's partly why the White Sox offense is sputtering. Hopefully he figures it out. By the way, on your point with Frank Thomas saying that he needs Tim Anderson on second to hit better. With a runner on first this year, uh, Jose Abreu's hitting 283. With a 358 on base percentage, slugging 583, that's awesome. And if he was hitting that right now, we're not talking about Jose Abreu other than praising him. With mm-hmm. a runner on second, Abreu's hitting 208 with a 321 on base percentage and slugging 458. That's a pretty significant drop. With runners on base, no matter where they are, if they're on first or in their in scoring position, Abreu this season's hitting 263 with a 335 on base percentage, slugging 504. That is a typical Jose Abreu line. With runners not on base, Abreu's hitting 220 with a 299 on base percentage and slugging 366. So I maybe there is something like a psychological barrier when Abreu's in the batter's box and he doesn't see anyone on base and he feels like, well, I got to hit a home run here because every time I get up to bat, we have to score some way. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to pay more attention to that. But Abreu's not a very good hitter when nobody's on. Uh, but when there are guys on base, uh, he does he, he does a better job as far as making contact. And with runners in scoring position, Abreu's hitting 247, 318 on base percentage, slugging 438. Those are pretty drastic differences from 2020 when Abreu won the American League MVP. But like I mentioned, to protect ourselves, because I know people are listening and you're going to come right back into this in the beginning of September when Jose Abreu has a monster August month. But I'm telling you, August Jose Abreu is a baseball god that comes down from the heavens and lays waste to Major League Pitching and it continues over to September because he's had terrific history in the month of August and September. We're just hoping that that version of Jose Abreu arrives earlier because the White Sox need him more than ever and he's not hitting in the month of June and this is going to be his worst June ever in his career. It'd be great to see Jose Abreu have a big bounce back in the month of July. You could say that uh, August Jose Abreu is August. See, I'm terrible with... (laughs) <laughs> terrible with this Greek history, Greek gods, Roman gods. I know Zeus. I know Thor. Yeah. 
No, it's uh, it's adjective. I looked up the definition to make sure I wasn't mis- yeah, uh, remembering it incorrectly, but marked by majesty, dignity, or grandeur. That's perfect. Yes. So there you go. Yes, we need August Jose Abreu right now. Get those superpowers, buddy. We need you to appear in the month of July. Well, Jim and I are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll chat about watching Jake Berger in person and preview the weekend series for the White Sox as they face the Seattle Mariners. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to this episode of Sox Machine Live. After talking about the White Sox series in Pittsburgh and the offense sputtering, let's talk about the White Sox minor leagues for a moment. As again, Jim is getting an opportunity to watch the Charlotte Knights as they are visiting his backyard in Nashville. And Jim, when it comes to the Charlotte Knights, the player that's captivating the most attention right now for White Sox fans is Jake Berger because this is an incredible bounce back from having two ruptured Achilles tendons, mm-hmm. uh, overcoming those serious injuries and not having played double A baseball. The White Sox felt well, based on what we saw in Schaumburg and his college league in the middle of nowhere, we feel like, yeah, he can play in triple A and he's having a monster season offensively. And now the White Sox are having him play second base. So for you getting an opportunity to watch Berger in person, what do you make of him? Well, you know, it's a great story, first of all. Um, Just he's moving well. Like I noticed that I think jumped out to me, like watching him in spring training, watching him in the minors like uh, this year, just every time he had to book it, like either down the line or, or rounding a base, like taking a hard turn, um, breaking back, like stopping and, and retreating. Like you just think like his ankle's going to explode and you're going to have to watch him get carted off again. It's going to be terrible, but just watching him, you know, he had a couple singles that he, he legged out an infield single to the left side. He, uh, rounded a, uh, first base hard going for two on a double. He's making like all the hard breaks you want to see, uh, like on the base paths. And there's really no concern anymore. He's moving well. And that's just, uh, I think the, the starting point, uh, because that was basically the concern every time he took the field was, will he be able to hold up? Will he be able to survive the grind of a season? And right now he's looking like he's thriving in the grind of a season, everyday action. So that's good. Um, second base, haven't seen him do much there. Like he, he just had one tough play he made, but I think the conditions had to be right for him to make the play with the catcher running and no instant replay. Cause I think the, they got the call wrong, but either way, like it was a good effort, but doesn't really move like a second baseman. The The first step wasn't in the right direction for that grounder. So I think it's going to take him weeks, I think, to be comfortable and playable on an occasional basis. Uh, so I think like having him just dropping him in and playing him where Nick Madrigal played, I think right now is uh, overreach, but it's a pleasure to watch him play. Um, the bat looks legit in terms of uh, the power and plate coverage that I think if I had any apprehensions in terms of how it's going to translate reminds me a little bit of, you know, pit hitters we've seen before at the White Sox where he doesn't walk a lot just because his hitting zone is so big. And that's the kind of uh, approach or skill that major league pitchers can use against him and just generate a lot of weak contact or bad counts. So I think that's really my, my one reservation with like dropping him in a DH right now is I think that's, 
I think if he were to make his major league debut with the White Sox this year, I would hope it would be with a position, like you know, maybe if uh, Moncada needed to miss some time at third base. But just to have him have something to do besides hit because providing like an impactful bat – uh, right off, the, right off the bat, I suppose to uh, mix metaphors or, or use bat too much is maybe too much to ask. Yeah, because we did get that question from one of our Twitter followers, Gukas Liagito, asking, "Would it make sense for Berger to replace Yermi Mercedes at DH?" And right now, you're saying, "No, that's not a good idea." Uh, you know, if you didn't put hopes on it, you know, given how <laughs> poorly Mercedes is playing, yeah, you know, the the bar is really low. So I mean, like, if you're going to plug him in at DH any time. This would be the time, but I think, you know, based on how much time he's missed trying to, yeah, I think even his uh, third base is looking a little bit rusty right now. So, I mean, I don't think you want to abandon defensive development at either of his infield positions right now in order to get his bat in the lineup, because I don't think his bat would be that good immediately. So I, I think if you had the idea of having him DH some, but also rotate between third and first and maybe second on a day where there's a fly ball pitcher on the mound, he could get by with it. But right now I think there's just, uh, you know, with how rough Mercedes is, just an urge to get anybody to replace him. And Berger, it's, he'd be fine. You know, you know, better than Mercedes at least, but just, I, I don't want to see the White Sox lose the big picture with Berger, uh, which is shaping a ball player out of him. I think just rushing him up uh, to plug him in feels like that, uh, um, a failure to plan in your part doesn't constitute an emergency on mine. And I think that's the case with Berger. Like, you know, just because there's a crisis at DH doesn't mean you have to forsake everything that Berger needs, which is time, uh, reps, and defensive reps in order to get him to the player that he needs to be. Well, the White Sox didn't care about that with Andrew Vaughn. <laughs> yeah, but at least he has a position to play. Yeah, position and, that he never played. <laughs> yeah, but it's like at least he's, you know, and, and he's been good enough there, and he, he worked a bit in Schaumburg there. So, you know, there is, and, and you know, if he looked terrible, I wonder if they would have pulled the plug on it, optioned him down or something. But the fact that he really has only had maybe two or three mistakes that you can say, like, he definitely should have caught. Um, yeah, he's made it easy on them. Yeah. But I think Berger just what watching him have two pop-ups circle back behind his head, like identical pop-ups behind first base, uh, whiffing on those. Like basically he's had two, three games at second base, two have been fine, but hasn't been tested in the one game where he had complicated plays. He botched both of them. So it's infields different than left field just because there are a lot of responsibilities and, uh, he's just not quite there yet. And he's not quite the bat that I think Vaughn, uh, yeah. I think Vaughn has the plate discipline that Berger, Berger's a bit more free swinging. So I think that's there to buoy uh, Vaughn as well. Yeah. And Berger is crushing left-handed pitching. He's I think lost against right-handed pitching. It's a great lesson to be learning for Andrew Vaughn this season. Oh, you mean Vaughn or Berger? Cause you said Berger first. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah. Andrew Vaughn. Andrew Vaughn yeah. is a left-handed masher right now for the White Sox. And you know, the lineup typically is, I say typically they haven't been lately, um, Vaughn has been struggling against right-handed pitching this season as far as his development, but the way that he's playing left field, I've been impressed, but it, it is just kind of odd when it's like, <laughs> cause you make a great case, Jim. Yes. The white Sox don't want to forego the development of a player like Jake Berger, who hasn't played in a couple of seasons and he's already making a pretty significant jump as far as level of play. But then there's an example that's happening right now with Andrew Vaughn where that just kind of flies in the wind. It's like, yeah. well, it doesn't it doesn't mean although, anything although, to Andrew uh, Vaughn. Burgers, yeah, Burgers got the lopsided splits to um, oh, 1305 against lefties, 736 against righties OPS-wise, uh, and a 30% strikeout rate against righties. So that's why I think he could be exploited and just – he could still – he still benefits immensely from just playing every day, just – based on how much time he missed. And especially if he's going to learn multiple infield positions, like no reason to take him out of that just yet. Well, this is a lot about Jake Berger. What about other players on the Charlotte Knights roster? That's keeping your attention while you watch them in person. Well, you know, Gavin sheets, he was played right field, which was handy and made one routine play really slow circuitous route on another, on a ball that dropped in front of him, uh, 
that that wasn't that impressive. It made a catch down the line. So basically two out of three, which is, you know, two out of three ain't bad, but I think when it comes to routine catches in right field, it is bad. Uh, I guess the one thing I can say about Nashville, the way it's, uh, the, the stadium is designed is that it can be a harsh sun field, especially for center field early in games. Um, the, the sun kind of sets uh, behind the first base side and and depending on where the balls hit you have ball coming out of the shadows into pretty stark sunlight and that that did allow Berger to have his first single of the game um yesterday so sheets might have been a little bit thrown off by that but it wasn't quite the super harsh sunlight of the first inning so that was you know meh uh he still needs work out there uh, I also got to look at Tyler Johnson, who's throwing a lot of pitches. Like his fastball is 94, 96. I think his fastball is more or less where it's supposed to be, but just the control isn't there through only half of his pitches for strikes. Needed Jace Fry to come in and get the last out of the inning. Fry looked okay. He retired the only batter he, he faced. So I uh, got to look at some relievers who I think are worth seeing. Um, the other thing that's interesting too, is that AAA, they're doing these pitcher inspections as well. I did not know that. So Every time a pitcher comes off the mound, or at least twice a game, starters have to do it. Every game or after the every inning, the reliever has to get checked, hat, uh, glove, belt, and they're all complying so far. But that's that's one thing I noticed as well. Well, that's your Charlotte Knights update. It's been a while since we talked about the minor league affiliates. I know we have the minor league report, but we haven't had these types of breakdowns since the White Sox rebuild transitioned into the contending phase. We didn't have the minor leagues to talk about at all in the 2020 season. So it's nice to talk about the Charlotte Knights and Mike Rodolfo's hitting home runs. And I really like Jose Rodriguez. If I had to compile a list of the top White Sox prospects, he might be number one for me right now. Uh, I feel like he, at least on the intriguing side, he's one of the most intriguing prospects within the minor leagues for the White Sox. So it's nice to talk about the White Sox minor leaguer. But let's talk about who the White Sox are going to face this weekend as they're still in first place and they're facing another team that's on a two-week tear. The Seattle Mariners are 39-37. and They're third place in the American League West. They're eight games back of the hottest team in the world right now, the Houston Astros, who I think have now won 10 straight games. So it's just not the White Sox that they chewed up and spit out. Uh, They are just crushing everyone in their path right now. Uh, They have the best record in the American League. Uh, Seattle is also five and a half games back of the wild card at this moment. Their last 10 games, the Seattle Mariners are eight and two. And what's amazing to me is that their expected win-loss record, again, this is taking into consideration how many runs they have scored and how many runs they have allowed their expected win-loss record is 33-43. and 43. So they're outperforming their expected record by six games already this season. So that is very eye-opening. The season series, the White Sox lead two games to one as they won two out of three in Seattle. They, the one loss the White Sox had that goes back to Matt Foster having that meltdown in which Tony La Russa admitted that he made a mistake uh, as the White Sox just... Again, completely meltdown in that sixth inning, losing the 4-1 to lead. Uh, offensively for Seattle, this is not a strong hitting team on the season. They're hitting 215 with a 288 on base percentage, slugging 375. They have a team weighted runs created plus of 88 for the season. So Seattle offensively is 12% below league average in 2021. However, the last two weeks... They're hitting 243 with a 301 on base percentage, and they're slugging 417, and they have a 101 weighted runs created plus of slightly above league average the last two weeks. Starting pitching, they have a 4.63 season ERA that's 20th in Major League Baseball. Guess what? Last two weeks, 3.95 ERA. That's better than the White Sox. Their bullpen, a 4.14 ERA for the season, 18th in Major League Baseball, Guess what? Last two weeks, 3.50, better than the White Sox. So the Seattle Mariners, again, they're on a two-week tear. I think that's mostly why they're perform- outperforming their expected win-loss record by six games right now and why they've won eight of their last ten games. The probable pitchers for this weekend, and I I have to put asterisks in all of these days and times 
There is inclement weather coming into Chicago this weekend in which there's a at least a 50% chance of scattered thunderstorms each of these games. So Friday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, right now your scheduled starters are Yusei Kikuchi for Seattle against Carlos Rodon. On Saturday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Logan Gilbert against Lance Lynn. And on Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, another lefty, Marco Gonzalez, against Dallas Keuchel. We'll see if they play these games on time, if we have any delays, or if a game will have to be, be postponed. And we see two seven-inning doubleheaders over the weekend. So fingers crossed that Mother Nature can hold off on the rain so the White Sox and Mariners can get the these games in um, because you would hate for these two teams to have to come back to Chicago on an off day and make up a game if they have to cancel one or at least postpone it for later this year because, again, the season series between these two teams ends this weekend. So, Jim, nothing really screams at you when you're looking at the Seattle Mariners, nothing that really strikes fear as an opposing fan. But this, again, is a team on a two-week tear. They're playing much better baseball. How are you looking at this series with the Mariners coming into town? I'm looking at their June stats, and you know I think what's fascinating about them is that they really don't strike out many uh, hitters as a pitching staff, and they strike out a ton as a lineup. So you think when you look at their struggles with the strike zone, you know, managing it on both sides or, or exploiting it, on one side managing it on the other, you would think that uh, it's a recipe for disaster and the kind of, uh, I guess, exposed to luck on one end, uh, not making their own luck on the other to where they wouldn't be on the right side of any kind of uh, differential between expected and actual standing. So it is uh, you know, weird the way they've come together. It's weird to see uh, Hector Santiago pitching so well for the Mariners. Uh, it's just come out of nowhere and... Uh, they added him, uh, I think, mid-season. He's been great in June. So they have a lot of like pitchers. You look up and down the the pitching staff that you just don't know their names or you know their names but thought they were – like Kikuchi thought like he was going to meet his initial hype coming out of Japan. He's been pretty good. Santiago, just you know his name but thought he was done. Uh, Graveman just kind of bounces around. Like you, you look at their, their – uh, you know, Gonzalez, I think, has been respected um, but just you know kind of uh, anonymous on a team with other problems. Just uh, – a team with a relatively anonymous pitching staff that seems to be doing pretty well right now, just uh, in a way that, you know, I think could frustrate White Sox fans just because, uh, you know, if they are about uh, getting weaker contact or ground balls or, um, you know, fly balls hitting in the shifts, what have you, that's something the White Sox have been uh, fairly adept at doing just lots of weak contact. <laughs> I think uh, uh, you would like to see the White Sox, uh, turn around and, and kind of hammer somebody like Kikuchi or Gonzalez, you know, an under uh, lefty with like underwhelming stuff. But uh, the way they've been pitching and the way the White Sox have been hitting, it seems like it could be more of the same. Yeah. I, I got a bad feeling in my stomach, Jim. I think the White Sox are going to win this series. They'll take two out of three against Seattle, but this could be another frustrating series to talk about on Monday. And uh, lucky for you, you're going on vacation. Uh, Yes. So, yeah, you won't have to chat with me about it on Monday. <laughs> I'll still be paying attention, though. Oh, I know you will, bud. I know you will. But that's just my that's just my gut feeling. Like, we could see more games like we just watched on Tuesday and Wednesday in Pittsburgh. And that's where it gets frustrating. Like, not being able to score off Tyler Anderson for six innings? Come on. That was a pathetic display of offense by the White Sox. And I could see that again against Kikuchi and Gonzalez, where it's like the White Sox still haven't scored a run and we're entering the fifth inning. Mm -hmm. And it's like, come on, guys. You're like, you're also one of the worst hitting offenses in Major League Baseball after the seventh inning right now. The clock is ticking. You gotta get you have to get going. So I I'm hoping that the offense stops sputtering this weekend. But I feel like we're gonna see more tight games this weekend. I feel like it's going to be very low scoring again this weekend. And we're just going to have to grind our teeth and hope that the White Sox figure out a way to score three or four runs to help out their starters. Because the margin for error for Carlos Rodon, Lance Lynn, and Dallas Keuchel, I fear, is not going to be great. Yeah, I think uh, the other guy I'm looking at this series is, it was nice to see Larry Garcia hit a ball over the wall. 
Uh, did not see that coming, yeah. especially like towards one of the further parts of PNC. Uh, not just a, a cheap first row shot over the high wall in right field, but you know, an actual legit homer that would have been extra bases otherwise. So if it would be nice if he could get like on a little one of his uh, two week tears that just uh, buy the White Sox time, because I think that's kind of how we're looking at it for the next you know, four or five weeks is just trying to find guys who can buy time. Uh, whether that's Mancata or Abreu resurfacing and making the lineup look deeper than it is, or Garcia getting hot, or Lamb getting hot against certain players, and Vaughn being a good uh, complement to him against lefties, just trying to patch together a lineup that gets it done one through five. Yeah, it'll be a grind. I, I figured this will be a grind this weekend, and fingers crossed the rain holds off in Chicago and the White Sox and Mariners can get this series in. It'll be the first 100% capacity series for the Chicago White Sox. And they are close to sold out for these three games. I've got tickets going to the Saturday and Sunday game. We're going to talk more about the fan experience with the stadium back to 100% capacity for the first time since 2019 on Monday Sox Machine podcast. So a little tease for you guys to look forward to our next podcast. But that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, the next one will be streaming when Jim is not in a hurry to get to the ballpark to, to cover the Charlotte Knights and the Nashville Sounds. Uh, a couple of promotional items. One, we're still having people fill out the survey form for the July 24th tailgate as we are hosting in Milwaukee along with our friends from the 108. We'll have special edition koozies to pass out. So if you plan on being at the Brewers versus White Sox game on Saturday, July 24th in Milwaukee, let us know so we can plan accordingly. And on Friday, June 25th, starting at 6 p.m. Central Time, will be the second mock draft from Prospects Live. They do an excellent job of tracking Major League Baseball draft prospects throughout the season. I mention this because I am representing the Chicago White Sox. So I'll be making the 22nd pick, and I can't wait to get involved. And uh, you're just going to have to watch to see who I pick. It'll be a fun time, and I hope you guys tune in. But again, this will do it for this version of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. If you enjoy our work and want more, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine where you can sign up for any of our monthly tiers at $2, $3, $5, or $10 a month where you get additional exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. We're going to have new swag items. I've seen them. They look awesome. And our Patreon supporters get the first chance to buy those new Socks Machine swag items. So again, if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today. Socks Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.